Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. We're glad you could spend part of your Saturday with us. Before we get started with our guest today, uh, next Saturday, May 29th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, so an hour later than today, our guest for the live stream will be the 4400 and Turner and Hooch writer Jackie Disembly Penn, who came up through the assistant ranks on shows such as Grimm, For the People, and Ginny and Georgia. So hear about her route into the writer's room and maybe get a few tips that will help get you staffed. Uh, that's next Saturday, the 29th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. <clears throat> Excuse me. But today, in the first of our series of Meet the Showrunner, is a writer, producer, and showrunner whose work includes Harvey Girls Forever, Dawn of the Croods, Robot Chicken, The Simpsons, and the upcoming Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai from HBO Max. Great to have you back on, Brendan. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. No, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you're such a nice guy, and uh, you have, uh, yeah, I mean, so much experience, so it's, it's great to be able to tap into that for the podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, now, you've been on the podcast before, and if anyone's interested in listening to the original podcast that we did, it's on scriptsandscribes.com or whatever podcast service, uh, iTunes, Spotify. Um, so you can definitely look that up. But for those of you who haven't listened to it yet, before we open it up to questions from the audience and get into uh, all of our conversations about writing and uh, Harvey Girls Forever and whatever, um, I wanted to talk maybe a little bit about your background uh, so, sure. so, so we can start off the interview with some context. Um, but anyone in the audience, feel free to leave questions in the chat, and we'll get, uh, and we'll start the question and answer session in just a few minutes. Um, so, first off, how did you get started in the industry, and how did you break into writing? Sure. Um, sorry, that was the weird sound thing. I think came up on my own on my computer somehow. That's why I was just getting distracted for a second. That's okay. Um, I came up through. Uh, I came up through production. Um, so, well, yeah, because I always always wanted to work in comedy, always wanted to work in comic books. Those are the two things I absolutely loved. Um, and it was like, yeah, trying to make my way in comics, trying to, on the comedy side, trying to do TV or features. Uh, went to NYU, their dramatic writing program, with that in mind. Um, thankfully, one of the great things of that school was they had a really good internship program. So did a bunch of internships, did some on the film side that were, lot less enjoyable but then did one i absolutely loved on the tv side um for the daily show with john stewart it was actually interned there right when right after john had kind of taken over as host and very fortunately i was able to get a production assistant job not long after i graduated so i entered as a production assistant uh left seven years later as a headline producer and did a little bit of everything in between but a lot of that run was as a writer's assistant mm. and just that the way the show operated back then was um, the headline producers were the ones who, you know, you got to at least throw in some jokes and some writing into the script because you were trying to put together kind of all the elements for the headline packages of the day. So I got to do some writing there, um, but it also was just an amazing comedy and TV production boot camp. Like I kind of learned everything there because any of those late night shows, at least for Daily Show, it was we got in at like 8.30 in the morning, decided what would be on the show between 9 and 10 a.m. Uh, the writers would write from 10 to 1. I would try to write material to add to the joke packet if I could. And then in addition to that, just trying to get everyone else on the crew informed of what the show would be. Then it'd be finalized script from 1 to 4 p.m., rehearse at 5.30, tape at 6.30, repeat the next day and just wow. do that every single day. So you got to learn. So now it's all things that kind of years later as a showrunner became like so, so helpful. I'm like, oh, 
I know how to think of my feet. I know how to never be precious about anything. I know how to make compromises just to get, a, you know, just to still be able to get the thing made. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a fantastic experience. Um, I also completely led to a place where I'm like, I don't know if I want to live at this pace forever. Um, and towards the end of my run there, I thankfully through some folks I met, uh, got to pitch for a freelance episode of the Simpsons and got that because my goal the whole time was still to do writing. Mm-hmm. Um, Simpson, when that came around was like a dream come true. Cause Simpsons remains maybe my favorite show ever. Right. Um, and getting to work with them. I got the freelance episode and then getting to work with that staff for a week. Um, that just opened my eyes like, oh my God, like here I've been chasing comic books and comedy and oh, right. Animation is those two things together. What This is actually like exactly what I've been wanting to do this whole time. So yeah, um, after that, yeah, I began, I moved out to LA, I left the Daily Show, moved out to LA and have been mostly working in animation ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as a writer and then moved up the ranks there to pitching on things and becoming a showrunner and stuff like that the last few years. Um- there's actually uh, a lot of questions about writing an animation, <laughs> writing, you know, staffing and writing uh, in, in a TV writer's room that I want to get to. Uh, and I'm sure our audience uh, has a lot of questions as well. But one thing that j- just sort of popped into my head from what you were talking about coming up through the assistant ranks, and I'm sure every showrunner is different, but just I, I wondered, because I've never asked this before, have you noticed having gone through the assistant route? all the way up to showrunner. Have you noticed that there's sort of, I don't want to say uh, sort of context missing or a differing in terms of a viewpoint of showrunners who may have come up through the assistant ranks versus those who were either plopped in there because they created their own show and, you know, started off as a co-EP and then just moved up to EP and and showrunner or at least came in through the the staff writer position up, never worked as a support staffer, have you noticed yeah. any sort of differences between showrunners? Yes. Again, as a generalization. As a generalization, and I'm going to just choose my words carefully. But, <laughs> as um, I tried to, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I do think there is absolutely a difference. Um, and I could be biased because I came up that way. Mm. I prefer working with writers who have worked in assistant or production capacity before they got moved over to writers. It is not essential. I have also, I wanted to say this, like I have worked with many writers Mm -hmm. who did not and who made the jump straight into writing and they are great human beings and wonderful writers. There is nothing wrong with that. I think it's more of this. There are writers who've done that who can still be great. I think the writers who I've found to be more difficult sometimes tended to usually be that case. I see. Whereas I think it is, if you come up one of the nice things, especially for showrunners or anybody who's at like kind of a higher level of the, in the writer's room, if you have worked in production at some point in your life or an assistant sometime in your life, I think you have a greater appreciation for the overall process and the big picture of everybody on the show and what everybody has to deal with. And I have found that they are far more understanding and a lot more flexible. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, especially like what, as it, for showrunning, especially it really helps to not that you have to know everybody's job on the show. It always helps. But like, if it is at least understanding just like, Oh, like going in, you're not going to push people too hard from the get go because you can know going right away before somebody has to say, Hey, this is actually a little more than we can actually pull off for this episode. Mm -hmm. You might actually know that when you're in the writer's room so that when you as a room are breaking something like that's great. We're not going to be able to do that. Can we look for an alternative that gets us to the same place? Right. So you can actually help production 
which ultimately, by the way, will help your show because you all have to make it together. So if, if you can't crush one person or one department to make a show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's just helpful regardless. And a, a lot of really good people fit that bill. Right. Right. Um, and most aspiring TV writers or emerging TV writers realize that there's different routes into the writer's room from the assistant route to uh, possibly, although it's a long shot, writing a pilot, a spec pilot, selling that pilot, and then obviously getting produced uh, as, as well as um, possibly. Crafted his rules. Sorry, oh, give me one moment here. Sure. Something keeps triggering on my end. Oh, okay. So sorry to everybody who's listening because it's <laughs> triggering Gremlins audio, which is not great. Um... <laughs> well, it's your last project. We can promote that in a minute. There you uh, go. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see here. Hopefully, this will make it better. Okay. We'll okay. we'll keep going, and then we'll yeah. see if it pops up again. But anyway, what my my thought was is that most people, most writers mm-hmm. coming up see the roots of the assistant route, uh, writing your own spec pilot and having it sold, produced, and made into an actual show, or um, staffing, going through the staffing process. But you had talked about something that I think a lot of writers don't think about, and that's freelancing. Because through the WGA, uh, every show has to have at least one, depending up to three or four uh, episodes, depending on how many episodes they're shooting in a season, that must be given as freelance episodes. They're often given to either writers the showrunner knows or is familiar with or staffers, you know, uh, support staffers, but can go to outside writers as well. What is that process like of trying to land a freelance episode on a, an existing TV show? Sure thing. So, yeah, um, I actually did it a few times. Simpsons was the first one I actually got. Um, yeah, it's a great option, exactly like you said. Um, and I will say just on a quick side note, I can, we can always go back to, there actually, there's more and more freelance opportunities in animation than ever hmm. now. Um What's Why is great? that? Um, it's for a double-edged sword of a lot more shows are doing freelance staffs mm. where they'll just hire, have like a showrunner and a story editor, mm-hmm. but everybody else on the right, that would normally be a writer's room or writer's staff is all freelance. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of just like a budget schedule production mm-hmm. change. Um, but yeah, highly recommend uh, if you can ever find out about these freelance scripts that are possible. And it is, I mean, the toughest thing about it is you usually only find out either through knowing people like the networking kind of side of things, or if you do have reps, they mm-hmm. can find out about it. Um, so I remember one of the ones I pitched on, like I pitched on like a monk freelance episode uh, back in my days. Cause at that point I'd been, I'd been a writer's assistant. It was either when I was still a writer's assistant at Daily Show, I might've gotten a bump up. I'd gotten a few jokes on the show. I had like managed to get some jokes on some other shows for like kind of basic cable sketch stuff. Um, so I'd gotten an agent to hip pocket me, which that means like an agent who will not sign you yet, but might start kind of working with you or at least pass along opportunities to mm-hmm. you. So that was, they were like, Hey, Monk is looking for freelancers. Um, do you want to pitch for that? So I did that. And that was like kind of my first time doing it. And yeah, it's a great experience because it is like, just at least you're trying to basically come up with like a premise and rough break of a story that you then present to them. And if they feel like it's the right fit for what they need, where it's like, I think always the logic going into a freelance is try to present what'll be the least work for the people involved. Mm. 
it's like something that's like it's not the one where like don't go into it with like i'm gonna write the episode that like blows everyone's mind <laughs> right the like, no you are the goal of a good freelance script is to make the rest of that production's life easier because it's mm -hmm. like it's a script that we can just get ready and put into production with less of a problem less taxing on the room um so yeah no it's a great opportunity again it comes up probably less and less it sounds like less and less in prime time these days just because as episode orders shrink there's they don't give them out quite as often mm -hmm. and and rightfully so the first I feel like a lot of shows also when there is one freelance script a season it goes to the script coordinator or the writer's assistant as it should like that and every show hopefully is always doing that to, so that the those writers can get their credits and start to move up mm -hmm. um but it was great back in the day for any show that had like 22 episodes then you'd have two or three so it'd be like okay we've taken care of our support staff then we were looking outside right so um, that's how I got one. It's awesome. I, anytime you can throw yourself into it and go in, I'd say also the more ideas you can bring, if you ever get that opportunity, like bring like three to five ideas, even if they're like, oh, just come in with like one or two. Mm -hmm. That's definitely one, like go over the top. I think part of the reason I got the Simpsons is I came in with like five. Oh, I see. And it was thankfully one clicked. <laughs> oh, well, good. Yeah. Um, and you had mentioned something in terms of making it easy for, uh, the showrunner and the staff as possible. I mean, not yeah. like breaking worlds and, and craziness, um, which I think ties into something that I found a lot of showrunners like uh, in terms of pitching bottle episodes, uh, yeah. which is something that they, they appreciate. Now I wanted to, now for those who don't know, a bottle episode is a very self-contained episode. For example, if you're doing an episode of Star Trek, instead of having multiple worlds visited and all these different sets, it's like they get trapped in the holodeck. That's your bottle yeah. episode. So it's very simple, very contained. How is that different in animation? Because of the fact that obviously animation, you don't go to specific locations. It's all created. Um, and is it more difficult to create a bunch of different backgrounds and sets versus more isolated stuff like are bottle episodes as important in animation as they are in live action yes 100 percent they are um but it's actually different and it's funny thing is i think it's actually harder for a freelancer in animation to pitch mm. a bottle episode because i, I think um i'm trying to think it'd be like a reuse episode and i'm going to use an example from harvey girls in a second so in animation the only reason i think it's harder is you basically have to know what already exists in terms of like mm. uh, asset. They're called assets. It, that can mean your backgrounds, your props, your character designs, basically anything that's already designed for the show. Mm -hmm. That's always the goal. Anytime you can use reuse in animation, it is the production's dream. Cause then it is like, okay, that means it's like less design hours, less, I mean, basically less design hours for the whole crew. So it's fantastic. There, that is always a goal. It's easier for the staff writers to do that because they are more aware of everything that's going and in our pre pandemic times, you could go to like, just have the writers walk out of the room, walk over to the design team and be like, okay, do we have this? Okay. If we don't have this, what's the closest thing we have to this? Mm. And then you can kind of adjust to it. But we actually did have an ongoing, so we hit a point on Harvey where we'd had like a bunch of really heavy, really design heavy episodes back to back to back. So they were like, please give us a few that'll be lighter to kind of like even the load. And we try. We came up with um, a bet in the writer's room of sorts of like, can somebody crack a 100% reuse episode? Wow. And our story editor, Mike Yank, did. And it was a fantastic framework because it wasn't one that felt like it, but it was um, basically like kind of a trial, like a, we, almost like a Law and Order or no, a Judge Judy type of parody hmm. structure-wise. 
but it was since it was like kind of one kid evaluating the events of other kids it was like okay we're bringing back kids who already exist we're bringing back the props from other things they've already done and it's kind of like yeah it was hit mike came up with this whole structure and it was 100 reuse and he definitely became the design team's favorite writer forevermore <laughs> and when you're pitching whether it's um on staff or as a freelancer, how long do those pitches go for? And how much detail should a writer put into those pitches? Like how much information do they need to give you? Is it just a broad over overview or is it like specific scenes and it doesn't get into real detail? I, it definitely varies show to show. I would say the good average is think a page, a page to like five, no, probably less than that, like three minutes of talking or one page typed like kind of at a reasonable font and such. Um, just because it, you want, if you go too far and like detail out every single scene, you might end up creating a situation where you actually hurt yourself on the pitch because mm -hmm. like whoever's hearing it's gonna be like, well, I kind of like the broad idea, but I don't like any of those specifics. So no. <laughs> right. And, and on the flip side, if it is like, just like, and here's like three sentences, that's like, all right, cool. That is a good idea. I want to know more so I can get a sense if you actually know where this is going. Like, I want you to do some of the work for me. Right. Like, I feel like, you know, if you look at it, it's like three to four paragraphs or one page, whatever kind of works out better there. It's like where you're basically doing a, you know, here's the beginning, middle, end, or probably more even like, here's the beginning, Here's the, you know, using like the Dan Harmon story circle. It's basically your four quadrants on that. Mm. I can't help but keep thinking in that structure. Um, right. Yeah. But it's like, here's the beginning. Here's where it kind of goes for the beginning of the second act. Here's the escalation or the kind of turn. Here's where it gets to its worst. Here's your wrap up. And then I think the biggest thing is, depending on your genre, make it entertaining. Mm. So if you like just have those bare bones with like, if it's a comedy, make sure it is funny put specific jokes in whether that's dialogue or just a visual or description but something keep it funny if it's you know an adventure if it's a genre piece what are these like little descriptions that's gonna give it a really big epic actiony cinematic type of scope um you know it depends on what it is i've never done drama so i don't know what you'd add at that point but like it's maybe it's the heartbreaking really try to play emotions in it that mm -hmm. sort of thing and i know for like network pitches or if you're pitching to execs you can have, you know, a lookbook or you can have, you know, any number of different resources with you. It's not just a script, but pictures and diagrams and uh, a pitch deck and all that kind of stuff. How much goes into it for, you know, pitching story ideas to a showrunner? I, there, I really don't think you need additional materials. Mm -hmm. It really is just like, just have, if it is like, here's, I think here's the main three things. What is the bare bones of your story? Mm -hmm. If it, again, based on your genre, I'll just say comedy for now. If it's comedy, how is it funny? So that you can kind of actually see the jokes or see where the jokes are coming from and make sure it is like, if you're pitching on an existing show, it's like you're picking one of their central characters. Like definitely, again, I think a trap for freelance that I've fallen in in the past is mm -hmm. like, you pick like that really interesting side character who never gets a spotlight episode. There might be a reason that character's not gotten a spotlight episode. Right. They're not gonna probably give that to freelance. Mm -hmm. So it's like pick a relatively central character and keep them central to the story. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. those are like the three main things. And it's like, just create a few different ideas that fit that. And in that same kind of length. Right. Right. And in terms of not using, you know, uh, characters that are not your primary cast. Uh, one of the reasons that I had, had uh, and I'm sure you could uh, verify 
one of the reasons is because those actors may not be on a contract yep. for those voices for enough episodes for them to be able to be used for, you know, other random yeah. episodes and things like that. So there's any number yeah. of reasons. Yeah. Any number of re- it could be exactly that. It's like, hey, we love that character too. We only get one episode with that person, with that right. actor. Season, so that's it. Or like, yeah, oh, they're off shooting a movie, so we can't use them this season. Mm-hmm. Or I've also run into things like on the show writing end, we're like, I'm so glad you want to write that character. Our one of our execs hates that character, so we're <laughs> trying to use that character less, like that kind of a thing. I see. You just never know the bat behind the scenes, right? You know, so, yeah. so you can't go wrong with the main cast, right? Yeah, exactly. You can't go wrong with the main cast. There's a reason that they're the main cast. Right, right. Um, I do have more questions for you, uh, but I do want to touch base on some of the uh, audience questions. Uh, So if those in the chat, in the audience, feel free to keep dropping your questions in there. We will answer them. Um, The Arabian Eagle says, hey, Brendan, how was it making Harvey Street Girls? How were the animators and voice cast? Uh, awesome. The entire show was a blast. It remains, uh, as of now, my, my, probably my favorite project, uh, that I've worked on. Um, yeah, the, the, every element of that production, we really lucked out. It was just a a great crew top to bottom. Um, and it was a very collaborative crew. I think it's, I, it has been, I'm so grateful that animation has been a really easy thing to shift to working from home during the pandemic. But I mean, I miss my Gremlins crew immensely, not seeing them every day. Mm. Um, and we only got so, like there's members of our Gremlins crew we've never met in person. Like I've never met in person just because they started during pandemic. Mm. So like Harvey really was um, just a nice mix of, that's like the, the last full show I did pre-pandemic. So it was a nice case of like, we all got to know each other really well. We all collaborate. Like every department was offering ideas to everybody on everything. It just felt like a real family kind of thing. And then the voice cast also um, was absolutely fantastic. It was just top-notch actors who, yeah, they all brought they all brought themselves to the characters. That was another one where, again, keeping the theme of collaboration, um, we would write stuff and the board artists would board things ways, but then it's, um, the actors really also just found like added their own personal touches to everything. And yeah, you know, they all became those characters, those kids. Mm-hmm. So it was a blast. Very cool. Yeah. Um, Kat Burgess, who's one of our amazing mods, uh, says, uh, how are you doing hanging in there during the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, more or less. Um, we, we, we've been lucky. Our, our kids have went back to preschool uh, last fall. So that made my wife's and my lives a lot easier. So uh, uh, yeah, it's been good. We're, we're hanging in there. We're safe. We're healthy. We're both, we're vaxxed family now, minus the kids. So that part's good. Mm -hmm. Um, The Arabian Eagle also asks, were there other Netflix shows you wanted to work at the time? Like Hilda. Um, I, I love others. There are definitely other Netflix shows I love. Um, I'm also, I haven't, Never had a shot at working on any of them, so nothing that really immediately comes to mind, but Hilda's awesome. I think it's a great show. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um, <clears throat> ben- I'll throw out one thing. I think the yeah. only Netflix, uh, for Netflix DreamWorks thing, I think I, I may have mentioned before, my one uh, thing I always dreamed that could have happened and never did was when I was on Dawn of the Crudes, mm-hmm. uh, our production, it was us, Peabody and Sherman and Voltron all shared a floor at DreamWorks. And I had a dream that was never really appreciated by anybody else that was uh, wanting a crossover between the three shows where it'd be Peabody and Sherman travel back in time to the Croods and they get, or it's, yeah, it's basically all three things. I have to remember was, the Croods end up piloting Voltron. Voltron crew has to host Peabody and Sherman show and Peabody and Sherman end up in the Croods time. I wanted to do like a swap between the shows. Um, that never happened. Didn't but happen. I think it's, it's something I wish was on Netflix and is not. That right. I was involved. Didn't happen yet. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> the pandemic didn't wipe out all civilization, so there's always a chance. Yes. Um, Benjamin Feldman says, I'm in the WGA, have a few scripts on the red list, and I'm trying to send out query letters to get representation. Would you have any advice on what the unwritten rules are of getting a general meeting? That's a good question. Um, I think it's honestly, it's, I don't know what they are because it is just trying to, I feel like it's always the, finding that fine line between persistent and unannoying mm -hmm. unlike contacting people, but it is like doing the cold calls, doing the networking type of thing. If you can get a rep in your pocket at all, like it is, I always think it's somewhat worth it. Of, all right. So if in your position, I think a manager is probably more useful than an agent. Um, cause when you're starting, I feel like a manager tends to take a much more of like a big picture view of your career mm -hmm. and all the different opportunities and paths that might be available to you at that point. And I've also found in my own experience, I've gotten a lot more generals through a manager than I ever did through an agent. So I would say it's like, if you want to really focus in, it's like focus in on trying to get a manager and anytime you ever have a chance, like, uh, you know, it's like, uh, contact or a hello or somebody from a, uh, an exec somewhere, especially development execs tend to be more open to general meetings and meeting people just as they're kind of breaking in. Cause I think current execs have a lot of time where it's just like, we just have to keep the ship going. Mm -hmm. Whereas development execs, not that development execs lives are ever slow because they're not, especially in these days, but, um, they, at least it's, they, you know, they're always needing new voices. That's part of their job. So, I think it's probably focusing on managers and development execs is your best chance. Um, unfortunately, it's just kind of a rough process. I don't really think there's probably a, a golden rule to breaking in. Right. No, absolutely. And it, um, Benjamin, uh, we do have a bunch of we we have had a bunch of lit managers uh, that we've interviewed and we've got actually got a few more coming up on the live stream. So basically, uh, okay. be sure to follow us on Twitter. And, and uh, yeah, if you want to ask those questions of uh, lit reps themselves, that's a, a good place. Um, he also wanted to say that um, I think I have something of measurable value with the finalist placements with my scripts. I have direct, I have the direct contact info of some agents. But what's the best way to be able to get through? Uh, also, was an intern at the Daily Show too. Absolutely loved it and learned so much from Jesse Kanevsky. I don't know who that yeah. is, but maybe you do. Yeah. Jesse's awesome. Yeah. Jesse rules. I haven't seen her in years, but yeah, Jesse's awesome. And hey, Daily Show interns uh, go on to do many great things. So. Um, that bodes well, hopefully for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like like Brendan said, um, agents don't tend to sign clients that don't have a tremendous amount of heat. I mean, if you're if you wrote a film that that was at Sundance or you won Nickel or you know or Nickel finalist or something, then maybe you've got a shot at it. But other than that, agents don't tend to sign many new clients that way. You know, from queries and things like that, uh, you're much better off going to a manager because they do read. Most of them read queries. Now, they may not respond based on your yeah. logline, but they will at least read queries, whereas agents often don't. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, Kaisuke Hoashi yeah. says, Yo, Brendan, how many months of pandemic hair length are you showing today? Thanks for the <laughs> insights into writing scripts. <laughs> Kaisuke's an awesome, awesome, awesome voice actor. I know him. Okay. Um, and let's see here. I last had this cut last July. So uh, we're coming towards a year. Hmm. Uh, after a very tragic attempt at cutting my own hair, I did the like, okay, I'll do the outdoor haircut mask on whole thing last summer. And uh, yeah, then I've just let that ride since then. <laughs> yeah, I've still done the clipper thing on my own waiting for, you know, my vaccine's 
finally, the, after the two week from the second dose, I'm finally through. Yeah. So I might be able to go back to the barber soon, pretty soon. That's, That's same. Nice. Yeah, I think I might finally, although I've gotten weirdly attached to the long hair now. So now I'm like, oh, I guess I could get a cut, but now maybe yeah, I'll no, keep it. looks it. good. Yeah. I think. Yeah, Thanks. I wouldn't have thought about it. Um, Augusto Amador says, in your opinion, when do you think in-person writing rooms will fully reopen? Great question. And honestly, I don't know. I think it's going to vary. I'm only going to speak to animation because I know for live action. Yeah, I just I don't know that we're I'm trying to think of like my friends in live action are also still doing Zoom rooms. And I don't think they really have a sense of it, but it also feels like the whole world of live action rooms is changing in like more and more shorter rooms that end earlier before production and things like that. So it's, I feel like that's a different beast. I don't know as well for animation. I think it's going to be a while, honestly. Like I know just speaking to ourselves, like there's no plan for us to go back this year. Oh. Like it's, it's going to be a while. I mm -hmm. think for a lot of writers rooms to go back in person, I think there's a huge benefit to being in there in person. Like I was saying earlier, like for I think there's a problem on shows. And again, I'm speaking at least more to animation than live action, just because I haven't worked in live action in over a decade. But um, there's already an unfortunate tendency for writers to be separate from the rest of production, mm. partially because like we're on a project earlier and might be off it before it goes into production. But there's not a lot of overlap. And, but every show would benefit from more communication between the writers and the rest of production. So yeah hopefully they do get back at some point but i think it's going to still be a while because i think as as everybody gets back to things in person i think it's going to be as needed and you know when you look at something like okay post-production would work so much smoother having people in person mm -hmm. uh you know when for live action like active sets and things like that like obviously they need to be in person like even for us we realized on in animation like getting our board artists back in person took precedence over a lot of the other parts of the, the production i think writers are going to be pretty low on that because it's like we can function as zoom rooms mm -hmm. so we will probably for a while. Right. Um, now, you had mentioned animation versus live action. And I know in live action, there are a lot of different producer levels, um, mm -hmm. starting off with staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, blah, 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 all the way up to, uh, you know, co-EP and, and EP. But I'd heard, and I don't know as much about the animation writers' rooms, but I'd heard that there are fewer titles oh, yeah. in between uh can you t tell me a little bit about the hierarchy within an animated yeah. uh series writer writer's room yeah it really basically just goes um so assuming you're on staff like not a freelancer type thing mm -hmm. it's like there's staff writer there's story editor and then there's the producer run showrunners level like there might be so like on average, also it tends to be smaller rooms, different if you're like on a Fox primetime show, then you still have a very full size room. And gotcha. there might, I, th I also don't want to speak to this, but like, I think there's still the hierarchy of titles is probably closer to a live action sitcom uh, on that. Actually, I, yeah, it is. That kind of works out mm -hmm. in, you know, all non Fox, basically in all non WGA covered uh, animation writing, it really is just staff writer, story editor. You might have a co-EP or a supervising producer who might be kind of like one level above story editor, but not showrunner. And then your showrunner. I see. And you said non-WGA covered. Are animation, a lot of animation series not covered by the WGA? Yeah, most, I'd say the overwhelming majority is covered by uh, the Animation Guild, which is like part of IATSE. I see. Uh, different union. Yeah, so it's Animation Guild, and then there are productions that are covered by neither and are non-union, and, you know, it's, that is what it is. But mm -hmm. 
Animation Guild, thankfully, is wonderful. It is a good guild, great health insurance, that sort of thing. It is not bad. The biggest difference is um, besides just, I think, WGA uh, minimums are higher. But mm. the other big difference is uh, WGA, you get direct residuals versus uh, Animation Guild. It's just residuals that go to pension and health. I gotcha. I gotcha. Now, is the is it as difficult to get into the IATSE uh, Animation Guild as it is the WJ in terms of, yeah. you know, hours or, or whatever, you know, um, points? It's, you still have, all of that still exists. I think it, and I'm not, I'm not sure because I've been lucky to be fairly steadily staffed in my Animation mm -hmm. Guild years, so I can't do entirely, but I it feels to me less daunting than the WGA one, which always has like a pretty high cap, honestly, mm. like that minimum amount of money or points you need to stay in WGA has always seemed fairly high mm. to me. Um, but you know, again, somebody might feel the same way on animation. Um, so both of them have the kind of relatively same entry point, which is like, if you're writing a script for a show that's in either one of those unions, they're going to ask you to join. Right. Okay. Um, well, that's good. Yeah. And it's worth it. I also, it's, it's worth it to join for anybody. And it's, even though I know the initial like membership costs are not cheap, it's a little frustrating, but they're worth it. And it's worth being in both unions. Mm -hmm. um, if you, if presented, join both. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then I've heard that oftentimes when you're, when you're uh, trying to staff on an animated series, you, the showrunners will often read, live action samples meaning oh, yeah. you don't have to have necessarily an animation sample like if if somebody is uh, uh submitting for you know harvey girls forever and they have a rose a new roseanne spec mm -hmm. or they have you know a, a, a spec pilot of some live action comedy sitcom as opposed to another animated uh yeah. spec or another animated pilot uh, how is how has what's been your experience with that as well hundred yeah, percent. I think it's honestly tonal match is more important than mm. anything else. Um, so it's like, you know, thankfully, um, you know, like a live action, a lot of live action series, like what we do in the shadows mm. would be just as applicable to animation. Gotcha. And, and it's just like, tonally, it's still kind of like doing slightly more surreal, uh, silly in the best possible sense of the word kind of comedy, or like going back to like when community was on the air, like mm -hmm. community was a live action show, but would be a great animation spec because the sensibilities are still really similar. I think if it was like, I think it'd be harder to see multi, like if you wrote a multicam spec and used it for animation, that might be, even if it's the world's funniest multicam, you're not entirely sure if somebody's going to have the same sensibility just because right. Yeah, but I think any any single cam comedy is probably going to lend itself to animated comedy. And I think also any uh, one-hour genre drama is probably going to lend itself to the more action-oriented animation. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. I guess like a really good, you know, Star Trek Discovery would probably lend itself to some of the more like serialized, adventure-y. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, a lot of live-action showrunners that I know don't often read specs of established shows unless it's a secondary sample like once in a while if they like your original pilot and they want to see if you can write in in someone else's voice they'll request a spec pilot yeah. i mean a, a spec of an existing show but oftentimes it's not the case it, how was that in animation is it is it similar um, like if you if you somebody had a spec of harvey girls yeah. forever not on harvey girls forever the show but yeah but you know let's say they had uh a Futurama spec or, you know, whatever, something, an animated show that's on the end. What am I thinking? Like Bojack Horseman, for example, sure. you know, yeah. would that work for you or do you want an animated, uh, you know, or not an, anime, uh, an original pilot? 
All right. So um, the overwhelming majority of showrunners in animation are going to be the same as the exactly what you're saying. They're going to want the original. That's mm -hmm. what they're going to read first. I'm going to break from that. I will always read. If somebody has a spec, I'm going to read the spec first. Oh, I want to me if I'm if this is to me the difference of like if it's somebody I'm just wanting to like I just want to read them to get to know them. Like it's somebody I'm meeting like more in a general capacity. Right. I'll read the original just to get a sense of who they are. If it's for staffing, I want to read a spec because I want to know if they can get somebody else's voice. Gotcha. That to me is much more important. Here's kind of my my own because again, and I'm slightly I feel like against the common or the overriding wisdom of the moment. But on a long enough timeline, most people can write a really good original pilot because I feel like it is like you don't know. It could have taken them two months. It could have taken them two years hmm. to write that original pilot. You don't know the timeline it took and the amount of like kind of workshopping. And by the way, there's nothing wrong. Taking two years to write an amazing original pilot sample is totally fine. And that's why it's still good to like get to know who that person actually is. But if I'm staffing, usually first of all, when it comes to staffing, I usually have, if I have a month to staff up a show, that is a luxurious amount of time. Hmm. So it's like, I have to do it fast. So a spec tells me more if they can do the job. And then I want to know about them. If it's like somebody like, okay, these two writers can actually do the job now. And I only have like, let's say one staff spot available for a season. It's like, okay, I can narrow it down. I'll read the specs. These people can actually write in somebody else's voice. And if it is a show that's on the air, you have a rough period of time, like, okay, they probably wrote this. Or it's like, if it fits into like a season storyline, like the current dynamic of the cast, the current dynamic, like, okay, they wrote or rewrote this within the last year. Mm-hmm they've clearly nailed all the voices. These are the right type of jokes. This really feels like it could be an episode. Then I'll go to the original sample to see more about them. But to me, a spec tells them more of like if they can do the job on the staff. Gotcha. Now, um, but again, a lot of people go the other way around on that and that's totally valid too. It works. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely. It can't hurt to have both. Um, yeah. For that I, that's, specific reason. At the end of the day, that's really the best thing is have both. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned specifically using uh, a, a spec of an existing show, which helps determine at least a vague time frame of when they possibly wrote it. But if somebody has like a, a new original pilot and an existing spec from a fellowship that they maybe applied three years ago, does, yeah. does that is that still useful? It's point. still useful because it still shows me if they can write in someone else's mm. voice. Right. If you can still write in somebody else's voice, craft a story for somebody else's structure and show and tone, like it's still useful for all of that. I've just found a few times where it's been, it's been nice to see like, oh, okay, this is the current dynamic. Like I remember staffing somebody off of like a really strong modern family. This was like a few shows ago, mm -hmm. but it was a case where it's like, okay, based on like the age levels of everybody, like they must've written this within the past year because this is the current season's take on these characters. Gotcha. So it just was a nice sense of like, okay, they turned this around relatively quickly, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And how how much TV do you watch? Like how would uh, – because if, if they wrote a spec of a, a show that you don't watch, then you may not, again, have the nuances of the characters. Like you sure. said, you know, this obviously is from this past season because you've noticed specific yeah. character, uh, you know, storylines or character traits or something that, you know, was recent. Yeah. I try to watch a lot, or at least I try to sample right. a lot. Even you. if I'm not watching every episode of every season, I'll at least try to watch episodes here and there of whatever seems to be popular. Mm -hmm. I've also have had things where it's like, okay, I don't know this show, but I liked, I thought this was a really funny, actually the, the way I got into watching Gravity Falls was because I read somebody's spec of a Gravity uh -oh. Falls episode. 
And I'm like, this is a really good script. I'm going to watch a few episodes to see if this matches. And it did. Uh, <laughs> it was one of those cases like, yeah, this totally matches. But that was a case where it kind of reversed. Where I'm like, I like this. I'll watch like two episodes to see if this roughly feels like they're getting it. And then ended up watching a whole lot more. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, before we get into more staffing talk, which I do want to get into, um, Benjamin Feldman had another question. It says, also, the Ben Kenobi character from Star Wars Detours, where did that character concept come from? The bits that I've seen are just delightful and so damn funny. Oh, glad you like that. Um, <laughs> I forget who pitched that, but... All right, and I think this is all, this is, I think, Star Wars Detours is always in a weird NDA nebulous realm since it has yet to, or maybe never will, air. Um, but I think we talked about this way back in some of like the little bit of press we did before uh, when we were working on the project. So our take on Ben Kenobi was, so the series Detours was set between the original trilogy and the prequels. Hmm. So it's kind of like after prequels, before originals. And a lot of our kind of brainstorming on that show was like, well, where, what would have been some of the funny places that some of the, fav, you know, of like, especially the original trilogy characters might have been in, in that kind of zone. And one of the favorites that we landed on was Obi-Wan, because it was a sense of like, well, he's hiding out on Tatooine, probably just trying to scrounge to get by. And then we came up with the joke that like, maybe he's tried to like, tried to train Luke a whole bunch of times, failed, mind wiped Luke at the end to start again because we just thought that'd be a kind of funny thing of like, yeah, never quite like the first 25 times didn't take what you're seeing in new hope was like the 26th attempt that they actually met and it finally worked. Um, so we just thought like kind of Obi-Wan's probably living a pretty rough, uh, life in those times in between since he's on the lamb and still trying to roughly keep an eye on, uh, Luke and Leia. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so I want to go back to staffing. Now, staffing is something that I think, hopefully, uh, most of our audience uh, watching, listening, uh, will be involved in at some point. Yeah. And oh, sorry, before we one more question, yeah. just uh, link to just, just remember it. Uh, that take, I think the take on Obi Wan came from specifically. I want to say it was Seth Green and uh, Jackson Public. Uh, oh. Chris, uh, I think because they were both in the room, and I feel like a lot of what became the Obi Wan. I also remember because they were the two who started really doing the voice in the writer's room all the time. <laughs> That's always fun. Them, them dipping into it all the time and pitching the majority of the Obi-Wan material when we first began. So I want to say that take started with them. Just giving credit. Anyway, sorry. Um, no, you're staffing. So um, as a showrunner, how many, again, and I'm sure it varies based on specific show and what your time frame is. You said, you know, a month is a luxury in many cases. But on yeah. average, on the stuff that you've done, how many writers would you say you get submitted for a show and how many would you say you actually read and how many would you say you actually invite for a meeting? Like the percentages. So, so writers out there could see what sort of the, you know, the, the odds are on any given specific show. Sure. Um, okay. So just going from the three, so just going about Crudes, Harvey and Gremlins. This mm -hmm. is the last shows. It's the three shows I ran where I was actually, yeah, one other hiring one, but it was a different scenario. So those three, and those were across, let's see, 2014 through now, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, roughly had, I think Gremlins might have been the longest hiring period, and we had like two months, two, two and a half months on that. Mm -hmm. The other ones were definitely more like two weeks to a month. Um, probably had, <clears throat> I'd say there were about like a dozen real contenders initially on each, give or take. Uh Competing for on each show, I'm trying to think, because on Crudes, 
there were two spots that I was looking to staff for. And uh, we're just talking about lower levels. We're not talking about. Yeah, on Crudes, there were two. Yeah, I'm the original breakup of Crudes was me and three staff writers. Mm-hmm. Um, on Harvey, it was me. And then when I came on to the project, uh, because it's kind of that was a slightly different structure, it was like a story editor came with me who I'd worked with before. Um, this is a little bit more of hitting the ground running there because that show was already largely crewed up. I was kind of coming in. I was brought in later. And one of the staff writers was already staffed. So it was only one spot on Harvey. And then on Gremlins, it was for two, three staff writers. Mm-hmm. So not a ton of slots. It was like probably like a dozen people in the sense it was like people who were either like friends had passed along. Um, yeah, friends had passed along or agents had passed to us or execs had passed to us. So I'd say roughly about a dozen people that we read. So only a dozen that were. Yeah. Oh, okay. And th- there probably were more that were filtered through the exec and agent level. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically I'm looking at, I can't, I'm not sure what the initial income would have been, but I know I read about a dozen on each mm-hmm. and that got narrowed down to about two to three serious contenders who we actually met with, or at least like really discussed and really considered. Okay. So once you get to the meeting stage, at least the odds yeah. uh, ramp up significantly. Yeah. Gotcha. So I think it is, let's see here, for, yeah, because for Crudes, it was, yeah, because there's one person who, they, Crudes was, I hired one friend who I had worked with before, and then two other ones who came in kind of through, going through the 12. I met with five and hired two. I see. Okay. So again, so two out of five yeah. did get jobs. And then Harvey was met with three, hired one for the one slot that was available. And I think, yeah, Z, uh, Z Chun, Mike, the uh, co-showrunner on Gremlins, mm-hmm. um, he and I met with, i trying to think, yeah, we narrowed it down. I think there's only like, it was a slightly different thing. But yeah, again, it's probably there was like five in serious contention and three of them got hired. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of staffing, uh, what for for you in particular, when you meet with a writer, what makes a writer stand out? Like, what is what are some of the things that you attracts you to a writer, thinking they'd be a good fit? Other than you know, obviously needing to fill a specific role, you know, or personality type within your your uh, uh, writer's room. Uh, and, and and also, what are the things that are sort of red flags, like something that yeah. makes a writer stand out to where, you know, I probably wouldn't want to cast or wouldn't want to hire this person? Yeah. Um, so one is definitely something just that you mentioned there in passing. It is trying to cast for the whole room. Mm-hmm. So it is trying to get different talents. So one is trying to get like, OK, this person's a little more character oriented or joke oriented versus this person's a little bit more like the big picture story structure or big season planning kind of oriented. So you want to have a balance. You also can have a balance of this person might be quieter, but their script was amazing versus this person is going to keep pitching nonstop. It has a really high energy level. Um, For myself, I like high energy levels. Mm -hmm. I want people who, if somebody is a little bit more of a quieter, quiet can be okay. Actually, I shouldn't say quiet. It's more overall, like the person who is positive, who is going to have a good energy level, or at least keep bringing positivity to whatever you're dealing with is more uh more appealing to me for somebody in the room versus somebody who's just kind of be like i don't know (laughs) so 
it, yeah, so that's one big thing. Um, I look for all sorts, always asking, like, I want to know, this is more of an animation specific one, but like, I want to know that they really want to be there. Mm. So it's not somebody who is like, what I really want to be is like writing, you know, the, you know, star show of a net, like the really big upper tier Netflix show or primetime series. It's like, no, I actually love animation. I'm totally cool and comfortable doing kids or family animation. And I want to be here because mm -hmm. yeah, you want somebody who's going to actually have a passion for the show and sure. is also going to be dedicated to it. Um, I also like knowing kind of what they want to do themselves. Like this is more to me, like the stage where I'm like, I want to know more about those. I want to read the original pilots or talk to them about like their own stuff to get a sense of like, what is specifically interesting to you and hopefully finding the person who's like, okay, I hear what you're interested in and it dovetails with what we're going to be doing. So that again, you know, they're going to get really into it because I always want to find for everybody on the crew, the ways for them to put themselves in the show and the way to feel heard and be a part of it. So if it is just like just a job, it's going to be a lot harder for that finding that personal involvement in this probably than maybe a better fit. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just also like to know what they're into. Cause it's, I, you know, when we do have rooms in person, there's going to be a lot of time just chatting with people. So it's like, I do try to find people who have some similar interests or at least kind of feels like we can talk naturally. Mm -hmm. Now, you had mentioned that hiring a writer who wants to work on your show as opposed to looking at it as just either a job or a stepping stone. Do you see a lot of uh, similarities and a lot of uh, writers jumping between sort of live action and animation or is pretty much animation – and animation, you know, and, and, you know, in other words, like there's a difference between, you know, a half hour comedy and hour long drama and writers don't usually intermingle. Yeah. Is it the same between animation comedy and like live action animation? I'm mean, live action uh, comedy. Excuse me. I think it's changing more and more. So it's a little, I think it used to be very much like animation writers were animation writers, mm -hmm. comedy writers, comedy writers. And very rarely did the two worlds meet. I think mm -hmm. that's changing. And I think there is a lot more interaction and I think that's fine. It's funny. Stepping Stone doesn't bother me as much as long as it is like you're into it for now. I think I've, every now and then, and you can you can figure it out pretty quickly in a meeting with somebody where it is the like they don't really watch animation, they don't really watch comedy, or they don't really care about the type of genre or show you're doing. It is just more of like, look, I really want to get staffed. I really, really want to get staffed, and I really want to do my own thing. And if this is what gets me there, then great. Right. Like that. It's more of that attitude. But if it is like. I totally want to do this type of show and this is just my stepping stone to doing my own original thing or my own variation on this or, you know, kind of going up. Wanting to move up is totally great and welcome. It's just the like wanting to be in this world while you're in this world. Gotcha. Um, but I feel like now, yeah, it's like as more and more live action, especially it's like single cam live action has a lot of the same cartoony feel as cartoons. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, you you know, take any Tina Fey, Robert Carlock show and like any primetime animated show and like you could swap their production models a lot of times and be still the scripts would probably play as funny either way. Right. Yeah. And actually someone in the chat, um, Alice Saldana said an animation of community, you know, uh, with a heart yeah. emoji, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. 100%. Yeah. And I remember a few years back and it didn't do very well. It was actually a number of years back. There was a, and I, I wish it had survived because I thought it was great, was the an animated show uh, TV series of uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Which, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it had all the the same voices. It, it, yeah. You know, and the same creator. I mean, it had, you know, uh, 
uh, Jared Hess, I think, was still running it. And I mean, it was sure. It was basically the same show, just animated, like King of the Hill yeah. kind of. Because King of the Hill could have been exactly. live action. It could have yeah. been. Um, burgers. Like, I mean, these yeah. are wonderful shows, and I'm glad they're animated, and they are fantastic. But it's like a lot of times it can cross. I mean, sometimes you have something like like BoJack would be harder right. to hear right. in live action. Right. But, right. you know, a lot of times, like, sensibility-wise, like, yeah, you can overlap. So it makes sense that these writers are going back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Another question here. Uh, Sarah J says, about how many episodes in a season get freelanced out? really depends on the show um if you're on i'd say all right if you're doing uh, if for 11 minute cartoons so it's a lot of like the kind of kids family animated series sometimes you have 11 minutes versus 22 minutes for an episode for 11 minutes your production schedule is usually pretty tight so it's you're usually turning out those scripts pretty quickly mm-hmm. um like on like from premise to record to record draft like you know done it as short as three weeks i know at some of the DreamWorks shows i've done um so those you're usually using freelance where you can so i think on like the DreamWorks shows we were doing like maybe like four to six freelance every 26 11s if that makes sense yeah so yeah that's something roughly like that mm-hmm. um yeah somewhere in that so whatever percentage i don't know what that would break down to but kind of like a you know maybe like at most a quarter um, however, on the flip side, if you're doing a 22 minute show that only has a 10 episode order, you're maybe doing one. Right. Right. And a lot of it is also within the WGA contract in terms of like, yeah. you know, live action comedy, uh, yeah. which I don't know. Do this, do shows like primetime animated shows on Fox, like the Simpsons or Bob's burgers or, uh, uh or, or maybe even Netflix shows like, uh, disenchanted stuff like that. Does that follow the WGA or is that the animation guild? Do you know? Um, all the Fox shows are definitely WGA. Okay. Some Netflix, I think, are WGA. I'm honestly not 100% sure on that. But I think mm-hmm. a few of them are. Like, I think Disenchanted is. I don't... I'm trying to think of Big Mouth. I think Big Mouth is still Animation Guild. I'm not mm-hmm. 100% sure, though. But yeah, I think it varies, basically. Um, WGA has those requirements. Animation Guild, to my knowledge, does not. I see. Um, whenever... Because it's, again, all the shows that I've run have been Animation Guild covered. We've done freelance scripts, but it usually comes from either... Uh, a production necessity like those DreamWorks ones, there was no way we could keep our schedule if we didn't bring in freelance writers. Um, and then on like Gremlins, it was a case of um, we were doing it because it was a way to give like our script coordinator get like get them their first script. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because we've talked about it on the podcast before about how some showrunners are very encouraging of. Uh, uh, support staffers and trying to get them promoted to writer because mm-hmm. I, I, I can't think of very many uh, support staffers who that's their sole goal. Everyone, yeah. all of them want to be a writer at some point. Uh, and then others are, are much less supportive of it. So, you know, being able to, when you're joining the support staffer ranks, if you're fortunate enough to do so, because the jobs are very few and far between to hopefully discern between those that, are willing to help you such as yourself and uh, others uh, who are not. Um, I, yeah, I don't, and there are sadly are many showrunners who don't, but mm. all showrunners should. It's yeah. It, it, there's no reason for showrunners not to help their support staff. If you can't get them a script on your own show, which definitely look in the current climate, mm. the episode orders are not big enough to sometimes do that. That makes sense. But then it is like, 
don't penalize your script coordinator when they are like, Hey, I have, have a chance to go for a meeting for something, or, Hey, I have a chance to kind of like take a stab at basically anything that can help them on their own writing career, support them, give mm-hmm. them the break, find another way. You can find other ways to either cover it yourself in the room or bring in the PA who's also interested in that script coordinator's job and give them a chance to kind of like gotcha. tag in or fill in like anything you can. But it's like support just showrunners. Don't, don't be jerks. Support your support. Staff. <laughs> um, and you're talking about, uh, again, going back to staffing because it's yeah, such sure. a, you know, an important and yeah, relevant part for, for a lot of the people watching and listening. Um, so we talked about some of the things that you look for uh, as red flags, some of the things you really look for in terms of uh, qualities that they may have. What are some of the questions that you may, that are very common in, in when you speak to uh, uh, a potential staff writer on your staff? And um, what are some of the things that, that you may bring up or ask you know, when they come and meet, like how many yeah. should they have show ideas? Should they come in, uh, you know, with specific things or be prepared for a certain type of question? Like I know a lot of writers, uh, showrunners will ask, what's your superpower or what are you watching, <laughs> you know, in TV and things like that. What are some of the things I, about you yeah, ask? The, what are you watching is always a good one. Just again, it's kind of getting a common, getting a sense of like common language, common interests, common tone. Um, I always try to do a little bit of like, I want to know what is, uh, what do they feel are their own strengths? What do they feel? um, Yeah. What are their dream shows to run? What are their, whether it is an original or like an existing show, like kind of like, where do they want to be just to get a sense of like their own trajectory and interests. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, a lot of it is it's trying to get to, honestly, it's almost trying to get to a conversation that starts to feel casual and natural and have its own tangents. Right. Because that's usually to me, the sign it's like, okay, we're gelling and we're going to be okay being in a room for a while. Um, So it's a lot of that. I think, so I try to just usually keep asking questions. So I just try to keep a conversation going. And when I have to ask a ton of questions, I get a little bit more like, okay, we're not quite the right fit. Whereas if it is like, okay, this conversation is kind of ebbing and flowing naturally between us, we're in probably a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. We've got a question. Kapil Gatwai asks, hi, Brendan. What do you think about independent animated stuff and how to approach networking in it? I'm graduating from Full Sail University in Florida and have tried networking. Yeah, um, that is a whole other community. And I'm not quite sure. I know... I will say for like, for trying to, this may not be that helpful to you. So I apologize in advance, but it's like for trying to get a manager, I feel like independent animation is super helpful. Like it's a great way. They're going to get a thousand scripts a day. Sometimes like I feel like reps, um, but at least what I have found, and I will say also for showrunners also, it's like, if I can watch a three minute uh, Mm -hmm. short versus read any kind of script, I will watch the short first. So using it as your calling card or your sample of your writing and your work, I think that's fantastic. So it's like, if you can produce something yourself, go for it because it's only going to help you. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of how the independent world leads into that, um, main way I'd say is getting to know people. I don't really, it it really is just the, I don't know. I'm honest. It's not a world I'm that familiar with. So I'm sorry. Cause I did, I came into animation through the very strange world of late night. Like, so it was, (laughs) After, so through Daily Show, I got to meet some somebody who knew somebody at The Simpsons. The next animation gig I got after that, so I still, once I left Daily Show, was still working in Late Night and Sketch until 
one of uh, somebody I knew from The Daily Show was doing voice work on a cartoon at Nickelodeon. And they, through them, were like, hey, I think they're looking for some writers if you wanted me to introduce you. And then it was kind of like I wrote a bunch of freelance episodes for the series The Mighty Bee. And after a bunch of freelance episodes, I got staffed. Gotcha. So um, my route into animation never touched on the independent world. Um, but I, yeah, I know it seems to work better, I will say, for artists. Like, I feel like I've seen more like board artists or designers get staffed off, of, get crewed up onto projects off of that. I haven't met any writers who have, but I'm sure they exist. I just don't know as much about them. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, yeah, Emily Brundage is a great example. She actually has had a, is doing great work and she came up through the independent animation ranks. I don't know how you necessarily would contact her, but she's like just one person I can think of off the top of my head who absolutely did come up that way. So it's totally possible. I just don't know. I don't know that path. Yeah. So I, I'm not very familiar with the independent animated route. What What is that? Is that something that people like spec scripts or indi- like shooting your own uh, independent film kind of thing on your yeah, own? And just- more, yeah. It'd be more like the independent film world. Like you gotcha. make and produce your own animated short or project of whatever length. Hmm, I see. You can do festivals, fellowships, all the kind of route that way and using that to break in. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cause I remember. Or web series. I mean like that kind of thing also. It's like just, yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that- Mike judge did a lot of that stuff with, Oh yeah, and butthead early on. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah, I know yeah. the South Park guys did it. That's how they got theirs. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah. Those are actually far better. Those are wonderful examples. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I didn't know that that was like a thing, like a legitimate route in. I think I thought it was just sort of a, a fluky kind of thing. But that's good to know that that's an avenue for 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 yeah. those wanting to work in animation. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. As I say, it's legitimate. It's just um, yeah, it's one I don't know as much about. But hmm. yeah, the more thinking about it, there's definitely people who do that. So yeah. Right. Um, what sort of advice would you have for those writers coming in, uh, going into a staffing meeting? Just sort of general advice, like wear comfortable shoes or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, power, like whatever outfit you feel comfortable in that uh, represents you well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do present yourself. I do think put in put in the effort to to you know to to look your best, clean up a little bit, that kind of thing. Um, I think though more than anything, it is confident, positive, cheery. I know it's a cliche and I feel awful sometimes promoting the cliche of like, you gotta be positive. Mm-hmm. But I also, I don't know, I think you kind of do, uh, especially at that level. It's like coming in as somebody who's like, I'm really excited for your show or if they, you know, cause also sometimes you're meeting on a show that you may not have a ton of advanced knowledge of what the show is, but it's like, I'm really excited to work in this sphere, whether it's like animated comedy or genre show or whatever it is. Like I'm super excited to work in this sphere. You can sense that like, I'm going to just come in and be really wanting to go and not at like crazy manic levels of energy, which might scare people off, but just like, I'm positive. I'm nice. I'm here to talk and help. And yeah, I want in like that kind of a vibe to me is the attitude to bring. Um, yeah. And still also, I will say this also though, but be true to yourself. Like don't, I know sometimes it is the, you're either trying to guess it's safe what you think people want to hear, or you're successfully saying what you think people want to hear, but it's things that aren't true for yourself. Mm-hmm. That'll only come back to bite you in the ass in the end. So it's, you know, walk that line of like positive while being true to what you want to do. Like definitely, I will say advocate for yourself. That actually might be the other great tip. Always advocate for yourself. Like if somebody, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's actually ask for what you want let people know what you're really interested in what you really want to do um 
I've had that be a great sign a few times, like somebody who we ended up hiring, not just on the writers, but that, that was also in like board artists or directors where it's like going with the person who's like, no, I really think I can do that. Or not even think like there was a board artist too. It was going to be her first directing gig, but um, my co uh, showrunner, a supervising producer on Harvey girls, uh, Aliki, she had asked this person of like, Oh, if, you know, if this director job, uh, if we want somebody else, would you be interested in a board artist job? And this candidate really is like, no, I really think I'm at the stage of my career to direct and kind of she laid out all of her experience and all her goals and all everything. And it's like, it really was a, a helpful kind of final detail for us to be like, yeah, she's the one. Like mm -hmm. it was like, okay, she has the confidence. She has this great vision of both herself and where she's going. And it was like, yeah, that confidence was really appealing and one of the reasons she got the job. Mm -hmm. Now I've heard of it before, but I just wanted to get your experience and take on it. Have you ever not hired a writer on a show but like them so much that you would hire them on a future show or you have hired them on a future show, a subsequent show that you worked on. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I've done, I don't know if I've actually done that, but there have absolutely been writers who I did not hire who I've then since like passed on to friends who'd be mm -hmm. like, Hey, you're staffing. You should read these people. Right. Oh, okay. Like exactly. you should consider them. Yeah. No, I, <clears throat> anybody I like, anybody who I'm willing to bring in for a meeting, unless like, I can only think of one case of where we brought somebody in for a meeting because I liked their writing, but then when meeting in the meeting, it was like, okay, personality wise, not a fit. I'm not going to necessarily pass them on for other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise it's like, if you're coming in for a meeting, I'm clearly sparking to your work in some way. So I will try to help and be like, Hey, they didn't work for me, but you should hire them. I see. Okay. Um, and without naming any specific names or getting into too much detail, have there been any sort of really awkward or bad showrunner meetings and what can you share so that our audience can, can learn from <laughs> that in particular? Um, I, the, the only one who I was saying, I brought in for a meeting who are not, was just getting very much the sense that that person did not like, never watched animation, did uh -huh. not like animation, really couldn't care about animation, but really, but was like, but loved comedy and was like, yeah, let's, let's have some fun, whatever. Like that was, that was the biggest kind of turn off there. Mm -hmm. Like, no, definitely not going with that person. I think otherwise, oh, the other one I can think of was also just somebody who was like, who actually had fantastic credits. It was meeting with somebody for a potential freelance script. They had amazing credits and we were like super pumped for them to come in and like hear from them. And their whole attitude was that thing of just like, yeah, I guess. Okay, sure. Mm. Whatever. I never saw it. I never watched it. And like, oh, you wrote on this thing. Wasn't that great? Yeah, I never watched it. I don't know. What? Yeah. Hmm. And it was just like this, like, okay, you kind of bummed us all out. Right. Like, they basically talked themselves out of a job just hmm. solely by not really engaging. And who knows? I don't know what was going on for that person that day. Maybe it was also a case of they didn't really want <laughs> the gig. I don't sure. know. But, but those would be things of like, okay, don't do that. Right. Absolutely. Um Let's see here. Um, Jose Saldana asks, uh, thoughts on the reboot of The Boondocks? Uh, looking forward to it. Um, I enjoyed the old uh, show back on Adult Swim way back when. Um, haven't rewatched it in years, but uh, yeah, I'll probably check out the new one. Mm -hmm. um, now, here's something. Augusto Almodora says, one showrunner told me that they wanted me to pitch their show to them. Have you ever done that? I haven't. I can see the benefit, especially if it is... If it's a show that's been on for a while, or just at least on air, I could see the benefits of that. I never thought to do that, but that kind of gets, I guess, a sense of like, hey, what do you think our show is? Um, 
it's a little bit of that sense of like, okay, if you pitch it back in a way that makes sense to me or is interesting to me, then yeah, we could be a good fit. Mm-hmm. I might steal it. Um, and for those writers out there who may really love animation, may be interested in working animation, but it, it's a it is a different sort of track once you're actually in the trenches, so to speak. Um, What are some things that those writers out there who may have either had experience writing or working in live action, but maybe want to do some animation, you know, want to work in animation? What are some of the things that they should know? What are the differences in terms of working in an animation writer's room versus working in sort of a live action writer's room? Um, I think one think every moment and, in a way that you don't have to in live action, mm-hmm. think about what you're seeing at any given moment. Mm-hmm. It's probably write more, write more action, write more across the page, however you want to describe it. Like just so you're always, cause you're writing for the artist. So it is like detail out the acting a little bit more than you might in live action. But more than that, it's like just getting a sense. You can direct a little more on the page. Not that you should overdo it. Cause, and, or definitely it's like, you know, if you're on a staff and then the board artist does what they want to do, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to create an ambiguity you neither want to create an ambiguity, which is like a, sometimes a problem of like, oh, well, here's like 10 lines of dialogue. And then like, and then they picked up the thing off the table, jumped out the window and flew over the building. It's like, well, that's a ton of action and a ton of dialogue that's not overlapping. That's going to be a very long, even though you got all that on one page, mm-hmm. that's going to be way more than one minute of screen time to do all of this action. Mm-hmm. So it's like, really think about like, okay, can you have dialogue while action is occurring and make that clear in the script? Can you think just think it out a little bit more visually and especially time-wise because the other one is i know there's kind of that kind there's that old kind of thing of like oh well in animation you can do whatever you want which is true to a degree Hmm. but it is like if you're going to do it just make sure you're really thinking about how to do it it's a little bit more of like again just so it's like and then suddenly they grow wings and fly to mars it's like you can totally do that that's going to take a lot more time than just one sentence on a page. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of think it out a little bit more of like what you're asking the artist to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the, really the biggest thing in terms of the translation. It's like, or it's just sometimes writers will write a ton of dialogue and never kind of include visual gags at all. And it's like, if you're doing animated comedy, especially it's like, just make sure there's something interesting to look at at the same time. Like it's a little different. I mean, Bojack obviously can do entire stretches without that. Um, and that's fine and that's totally cool. And I think certain series, just know your series. Some series that might be totally okay, but not every series. Mm-hmm. And I know in, in live action writer's rooms, uh, often writers, producers, even sometimes lower levels uh, are often covering set or sitting in on the editing room or doing other things outside of being in the actual writer's room. Uh, how does that work in animation? Is that sort of the same thing or is basically the, your showrunners dealing with all that stuff, obviously not going to set, but going to recording sessions and, and working with the, the storyboard artists and all that stuff. And then the writer's room, writers are pretty much in the writer's room or are they also, again, going from place to place to place? As much as possible. Uh, again, I think this is a very show to show. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, with a good showrunner, get them involved in as much as possible. I was super lucky. Yeah, the first animated series I was on uh, on staff was The Mighty Bee and uh, the showrunners there, uh, Cynthia True and Eric Weiss were awesome and got our writing staff into everything. Like I learned so much thanks to them of like, ha- have the writers sit down on the board pitches, have the writers go to the records at the very least, have them get to know the board artists and the voice actors 
because they are the ones who are going to, they're going to be most directly working with Mm -hmm. having them get to know, have them sitting in a design breakdown. So they kind of understand what, how, what they write impacts design and what they're asking for and get to know those folks. Um, If the, you know, I think the hardest part in animation is the writers are usually off a project before post begins. So it's a lot harder to do any of the post-production stuff, but you know, if it's possible, have them sit in on post too. Like, I think it's just, it's just good training. And again, going back to the the earlier thing, it creates a better sense of collaboration. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Let's see here. Um, Jose also says, not just with the boondocks, but what is usually the difference when a show is rebooted? Like what usually changes so that the show doesn't get canceled again? (laughs) um just hopefully um a culture as a whole i guess i mean hopefully just that it's you know sometimes shows are slightly ahead of their time Mm, or or a show is of its time that time passes and then that time comes back again um it's it really varies i mean yeah i don't know because i think it yeah it varies show to show like something like boondocks i feel like it's just like yeah it's time for a show like that again mm, yeah something like family guy when it got canceled then came back was a case of like okay culture kind of caught up to what they were trying to do mm-hmm. um and then there's you know other shows that just keep coming back because it's like well like somebody's gonna always love this core concept so let's always do some variation that's more appropriate to the current time mm-hmm. current climate or some shows like Futurama were never really canceled, so they kind of just rolled yeah. into a different network. <laughs> Futurama will forever appeal to, uh, and I love Futurama, but it's like Futurama will always appeal to the same niche, and that mm. same niche will always exist, but will also only ever be this big. Right. So we'll always have just that one audience. Right, right. right. Um, let's see here. Um, Tariq Kindle asks, what what's the most difficult part of writing for an ensemble of characters in animation? Um, how many characters you can have on screen at one time. Oh. That is far and away the hardest. Um, that's where I'll throw like writing crudes was so much harder than Harvey Girls or Gremlins because Harvey Girls and Gremlins, we have generally like there's three leads on those two shows. On crudes, there were six. Mm. It was the whole family. So anytime you got to a scene that had to have all six of them, it was suddenly like, okay, this is a ton of characters. I mean, thankfully, we were a traditional 2D show, which is more forgiving to that. But like, we literally would not have really functioned as a, a CG animated show because mm-hmm. there's much, there's like actual limits usually in CG of like how many characters you can have on screen at a time. So if we had like the Cruz family and like a few other characters or a few creatures, it'd be like, all right, you're capped. Like you can only have so many shots with that many characters for the whole episode. And it would start to dictate how you have to produce the whole thing. Wow. Doing Star Wars stories ran into that a lot. Like, we would want to do those like epic, um, very uh, Star Wars movie shots of like, here's the Emperor getting off the shuttle and like lines and lines of stormtroopers. And then you come back like, you can have 10. You can have 10 stormtroopers. <laughs> no. And I remember like at one point, like making that a gag where it's like the Emperor's like, where are my guys? I'm just having guys. <laughs> um, but like that kind of, so yeah. So I think the bigger your ensemble in animation, the more production hiccups you can run into down the road. So it's usually a little easier to have, or if you have an ensemble where it's like, you don't need all characters in the same scene, you're fine, Mm -hmm. but something to be aware of. Now I understand sort of the issue of when you have six main characters trying to incorporate them all and make it feel natural as opposed to just in making them speak just because they're there and not, you know, but what, what in terms of like the technical aspect, like why in, in live in, in, sorry, excuse me, in traditional 2d animation, the drawing, as opposed to the 3d CGI animation, why can you have 
more characters in in 2D versus in 3D, you know, uh, CGI animation? Yeah. Why are there limits? Um, it goes to a technical side that goes beyond. This is where you hit the cap mm-hmm. of my tech knowledge, but I know it's actual technical limitation. Uh-huh. I don't know if it has to do with rendering times. Gotcha. But like, but yeah, it's not possible on the CG side. I mean, it's still going to be a pain, and it's going to be a pain on 2D as well because you're still then trying to figure out the staging of mm. six characters in a shot if you want them all in the same, or you're cutting between six characters in a space, which still just starts to get problematic. Um, so it's just th- those kind of issues. Um, but yeah, the biggest writing problem is also, like you just said, you're then trying to write a scene that has six people with at least, hopefully they all have like something to add to the scene sure. and to the conversation, and you're trying to check in at least with all of them. Remember, um, it's for live action, but like Z sharing from like one show he was on, there's like, it was a show that had a massive ensemble and like the hell that was writing and producing a scene that had like 12, at that point they had like 12 core characters that all had to be in the scene together. And all needed at least one line in the scene to check in on. And it was just, yeah, it's not easy to write those. Mm -hmm. Now, as we sort of wrap up here, um, I wanted to ask you just sort of fun questions. Um, Can you relay a a fun or interesting story or share an anecdote of your time on Harvey Girls Forever and or uh, the new upcoming Mogwai uh, show on uh, the Gremlin show, Secrets of the Mogwai on HBO Max? Uh, sure. I'm trying to think of something fun on either show now. I'm totally blanking on it. And I had so much fun on both. Um, <laughs> you had so much fun that there's too many to choose so from. Much fun to hit all yeah. The um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything specific on either one. Uh, on, on Gremlins, I will share this. Um, one really fun thing was, because I also know like what we can or can't say yet, but um, one awesome thing was early on, we started getting to play with some of the movie stuff. So we've got to actually go into the Warner archives and like oh. actually get to like take out like the gremlin puppets and like play with them and like wear them on our head. Like a lot of them had like the, it's kind of like a bike helmet that had like the puppet. on. Oh, top so they weren't like hand puppets. They were actual. A uh, mixture of both. Oh, okay, cool. Both. Uh, the puppets that were in good shape that we were getting to see and interact with were from gremlins too. So um, it was, yeah, Z, myself and a bunch of our like, production leads and design team got to check those out and just going through the Warner archives in general. It's like, we also got to like sit in a Batmobile and Mm -hmm. things like that. Like that was insane and incredible. And the perks of getting to do a show like that. And we've also gotten to work with Joe Dante. That actually might be the most fun. We got to sit down with him and like hear his thoughts on like what, when he was coming up with, or when, I mean, I guess Chris Columbus wrote the script, but then like Joe's own ideas that like never made it to screen or like Mm -hmm. his own thoughts on like the origins of the Mogwai and thing ideas that he didn't get to or things like that. It was just, super fun just also hearing his his anecdotes are incredible of like trying to make gremlins and the studio's reaction initially to gremlins before like it had a test screening in front of an audience like just stuff like that was like so much fun to hear and yeah amazing on harvey street uh or harvey girls yeah every i'm trying to think it was just fun i'm trying to think of anything particularly um one of the, the perks of that entire show was we got to do so much original music which was like mm-hmm. something i've always wanted to do on a show and it was just so much fun doing all those songs and um a it was super fun getting to see every each one of the writers kind of eventually coming to like i want to do this one i want to do this one or even i remember like the design team pitching like we want to do can you guys do something like this like everybody just starting to get involved once they saw that the music was an option and starting to like really get into leaning in that and then the funny uh consequence of that was <laughs> the DreamWorks uh, overall coming to us being like, 
okay, you guys have to now do an entire season without music because you blew through the entire series <laughs> budget, uh, full season ahead of time. Wow. Wow. Yeah, because like we had already had like the season three and four like picked up for, but then it was like basically season three blew through the entire music budget for four. Gotcha. No, that's so funny. like yeah. So it's like oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, yeah, and I think with uh, both Harvey actually and uh, Harvey Girls and uh, uh, Mogwai or Gremlins mm-hmm. working in worlds that already sort of existed you know characters that existed and then generating an entire new uh world around it like expanding on that world and building uh on it is a huge responsibility but it must be you know kind of cool too to be part of that the history of these characters and and be forming forming you know uh, how these uh characters and worlds go forward so that's kind of interesting yeah no it's been super fun i mean we were lucky to have great building blocks on both also uh i mean yeah i I come to gremlins as a humongous fan of like the both the first and second movie like the first movie kind of instilled my love of horror and the second movie is like set my sense of humor for probably still now um and then harvey yeah again the way that i came in it had already been developed by emily brundage and um the executive beth cannon so they had put together such an incredibly strong show that it really was kind of a fun thing just to take those characters and run with what they mm-hmm. had there and then and then just keep adding and it really again it, to me a lot of the fun of writing in general is collaboration it's picking up either like here's some things that people have done in the past and like doing your own take on it for the future or you know it's you create your own original things and pass it to somebody else and see how they execute it but I don't know. I, I like the collaboration. I don't, one of the reasons the things I like about TV is you get to always work with other people and you get to kind of have other people plus your writing and you get to plus other people's work too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and when is, uh, do you know, is there a release date for Gremlins yet? Not this year. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I just, yeah, it's 2022, but I'm not sure beyond that. Okay. Cause I, yeah, all I had seen was 2021. I'm like, mm, okay. Yeah. Okay, so hopefully 2022 at some point, but we'll have to. Okay, well you'll keep us updated, right? Yeah, we've got we have a very uh, a very good comfortable production, which is uh, a schedule rather, which I'm not used to, so I'm liking that. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) So thank you for joining us today, Brendan. I always appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you. So I appreciate you coming on. It's been a blast. Uh, You can follow Brendan on Twitter. It's at b underscore hey. Um, and thank you all for listening today. Hopefully we'll see you next Saturday for our next live stream Q&A with Jackie Disassembly Pent. Uh, and so all of you, thank you for watching. Have a great weekend, and we will see you next time. Yeah. Thank you, everybody who asked questions. Thank you. Bye.